welcome to the developer tribe where we delve into the process and practice of coaches educators and beyond today we're bringing to you a conversation that was recorded some time ago the guest has since moved on to an exciting new position in his career but the content of this episode is still so relevant and full of practical implications for coach developers and coaches alike as always thanks for being here however you got here and with that let's jump in My guest today is a football coach and coach educator who has worked for Newcastle United's UK Elite in Iceland at a professional academy I can't pronounce and now finds himself as coach education manager for Red Bulls New York. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Richie Scott to the pod. Thanks very much for having me, Tim. I'm uh, grateful of the opportunity. Oh, for sure. How is New York treating you today? Well, we've uh, had snow on the ground and multiple feet of snow for the best part of a month now and we finally got some sunshine yesterday so I'm hoping that we're on the upward trend. <laughs> well I hope so I've, I've actually got sunshine here in Scotland for, for a change so I'll have to send some over, over to you. Um, I'm going to let you have a, a stab at saying that Iceland club for me. What, what was that experience like? Well the easy way to say the name is IBV but uh, it's Ithrotta Bandelik Vestmanir. And it's been a long time since I've said that. So if there are any of my old friends that do listen to this and my pronunciation is off, then forgive me. Um, but yeah, experience-wise was um, fantastic. Uh, I've often said that I'd love to have just picked up the job and placed it in a place like where I am now. Um, small club uh players totally immersed and invested in the game that uh Vesmanea is the name of the island which is on the southwest coast uh just off the southwest coast of Iceland so it's a population of four and a half thousand people um you can barely even see it on a map you have to zoom in way too far but uh because of that really small uh environment and culture it it is totally immersed in the game and the kids are always at the training center unorganized organized um they, they love the game and and then in addition to that i had wonderful experiences working with really good people in the game um probably the most notable of which is uh Hamid Halgrimson, which is the also known as the dentist or the coach that beat england um so wonderful mentor, wonderful guy, and uh, learning from people like himself, uh, amongst others, was was uh, special. That sounds fantastic. And I can I can relate a little bit to small island stuff, being from Jersey myself, a little bigger than what you're describing there, but but I, I get it. Um, and yeah, it sounds like an awesome experience and, and something you've obviously taken with you. You and I met before that, working for UK Elite, uh, predominantly in New Jersey. Uh, of course, that's now still soccer. But you returned back to the US afterwards. You know, Was it Red Bulls that you returned for? Um, no, I actually uh, continued to work for UK Elite, which is uh, where we both met at the time. And basically, in, in the early parts of my career, I was quite ambitious and wanting to push on and stretch for academy football and see how much further I could go from there. And uh, coming back to Newcastle after a first spell in Iceland, uh, first spell in the US, and almost fallen a little further down the list of uh, next in lines. So use that opportunity then to, to venture out and visit different places, which is where the following few years, there was a lot of movement between England, Iceland, the US um, before I settled back here in 2013 with um, UK Elite that was uh, FC USA was the club at the time and then transitioned to Red Bull in 2016 and I'm coming up to my five-year anniversary. Yeah brilliant so I imagine you're still coaching right now but you've made a jump from coaching to coach education did that come about organically? Yeah I would say maybe slowly um as i returned into 
the US in 2013 with, with UK Elite has almost slowly started to get integrated into their professional development team. So running training sessions at uh, some of their orientations when bringing on new staff, which began for just the summer stuff, then it became the winter stuff, and then it became like an all year round thing. Um, and then started to give some feedback to coaches on the field. And then obviously when I transitioned to uh, to Red Bull, initially that was in a full coaching capacity. Um, but you know, I had some really good people here at the club that believed in me and pushed me on really quickly. Um, so within, I think it was eight months of being in the door here, um, the coach education management position came available. There was a little bit of movement internally. So uh, that afforded me the opportunity. And then uh, this job is, is really fully immersed in coach education. Yeah, so look, let's start to unpack that because uh, you know you and I have had a, a quick conversation about it, and I think the thing that's fascinating for me is you're you're working with a huge number of coaches across a wide range of abilities, not only with the players that they work with, but also their coaching lifespan. You know, there'd be some that are relative novices, some that are much higher up the the, the chain. Um, how does that change your approach day to day? Well, I think first of all, I, I'm really big uh, and really value um, people and relationships. And, and I think that what I've also noticed from your podcast is that you have, uh, this is like a common denominator across a lot of people is um you know we value people we value relationships and we just want to help people to get um to their highest level of competency so what i have to take into consideration is that the varied levels of experience and understanding of the game that could be from a technical tactical side of things that could be from more of a people skills and personal relationships with the players um, but I have to try and understand where each coach is in terms of their own developmental pathway, but then also try and understand them as a person in how they might like to receive feedback and then really just try to use a personalized approach for every coach. And um, it's ultimately about landing the message as best as possible. And, you know, we'll use this, um, this great quote from a, a really wonderful guy in, in named Doug Lamov is a teacher by trade, but is doing some really good work in the space of um, coaching now. But uh, to understand the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And that goes for both players and for coaches. So just because I taught it, just because we had a conversation doesn't mean that that information landed with you. Sometimes it might be that we have to have repetition of the information. While other times it might be that I have to reframe the information, whether it be push heavy and direct or guided and question based. And then there's the check for understanding that has to take place as well. So I see, and I'm recognizing I'm going around the roundabout a little bit here before giving you a good answer, but uh, it's really just a personalized approach. No, absolutely fine. Uh, you find that the, uh, the rambles as it were, are where we get the really good stuff. Uh, I think I'd seen a little bit of um, Lemov, is it you said, um, his, yep. his work. Uh, I need to dig into that book, came across it via uh, Dan Abraham's podcast. And it was accompanied by that uh, a cartoon that I'm going to butcher now, but it was basically a, a, a guy teaching a dog a skill or telling someone else that he taught this dog a, a skill. The other guy saying, well, he's not doing it. So, well, I, I taught him. I didn't say he'd learnt it. Um, yeah. so I, I, I get, I get it. And, you know, you say a personalized approach and I've absolutely no doubt, Richie, that that's exactly what you're doing with, with all of the coaches that you have, but it's over 150 or coaches, I imagine. So you're only one man in a, admittedly a full-time role, but how on earth do you get across that many people and make it feel personalized to them? Yeah. Well, the, the reality of it is that the day-to-day -day is not 100 and, 
50 plus uh, anywhere from 150 through 170 is, is kind of where we usually land. Um, but essentially we have some, some really good structures in place. So um, those that sit slightly above the, the 150 to 170 coaches are our coach developers. And there's, I believe there's 13 of them right now. And their job is to individually have a cluster of about eight to 12 coaches that they directly mentor. And then uh, myself plus two other colleagues manage all of the coaching education. So we help mentor the coach developers so that they can now best facilitate learning with the coaches and then ultimately um, create really good environments for all of the, the kids that we come in contact with. Um, so for, for me, there's really an opportunity for me to get out on the fields and, you know, be with some of the novice coaches, but also be with some of the more tenured coaches. Um, but like I say, the structure in place is really that everybody's kind of already has some level of oversight. And then for me, it's now just opportunity to almost cherry pick at appropriate moments. Okay, this coach I might not have seen in a little while. This coach seems like they need a little bit more help. This coach is currently on their A license, so they might need a different type of help. And really just trying to, um, you know, figure out my schedule and then some other logistics of, you know, their schedules, fields, weather, and, and all of the other things that go into it, uh, just to try and, you know, get around as many coaches as possible. But as mentioned, you know, myself and the other two people that I work with, um, and they are phenomenal coach educators, by the way. Uh, really lucky that I have people around me that, that push and stretch me every day. Um, but really, I'll take two regions, which is overseeing about 70-ish coaches. Um, another one of our coach, uh, coach education managers has about the same and then the our third one is uh, a slightly smaller cluster so that's how we then manage everything else yeah, that makes sense okay so there's there's a little bit of a top-down approach uh happening here and i imagine there's some form of uh policy that red bulls new york will have in place are there ever any tensions between that of kind of what the organization wants to achieve and then what is necessary for genuine coach development at that time yeah it's a really good question actually because we've we've entered that space probably in the last 12 months or so where um and what's really great about the company is it's very forward thinking and very moldable so you know in, in the past we would just be a little bit more objective with numbers of, of you know, number of people to go out and see. Um, but have kind of evolved the, the process to make it really more about learning and really more about helping the individual coach to, to improve their level of competency. So what we found was that providing the coach a developmental window, so from first observation, we're specific with the language, it's an observation, not an assessment. Um, so between observation one and then the next observation, we have to make sure that there's an appropriate length of time for a development window. And then that can change based on the developmental needs of the coach. Somebody that's a little bit more green and new to the sport, new to coaching, might need a slightly shorter window so that we can just see how they're getting on. Whereas somebody that's very well tenured, um, you might just be giving them one or two action points and then you can give them a little window of five, six weeks before you come back and visit again. So that's the, the kind of evolution of the department. Um, we've, we've tried to go more about more in line with facilitating um, more of a true learning environment. And, and that comes from um, the developmental windows that we provide. Is that something that is agreed with those coaches or is it more prescribed by you know coach development staff um well the coaches all are fully aware when they come on board and, it, and it's actually probably one of the biggest reasons why coaches join us is um we continuously hear the feedback of you know excellent coach development program that's 
why I want to be here. I want to be here to learn. So it's really transparent with them from every orientation that they have. We'll touch on coach development and say, these are the ways that we might support you in the field. And we will absolutely be coming out to see you. But ahead of that observation, we'll check in with you via email. We'll then have a pre-observation call. We'll observe you. We'll then get on a call and have some feedback. Um, and that's a whole process which we can dig into if you, if you like. But um, in short, the, the coaches are well aware of the fact that we're there to be out on the field and help support them. Um, and I think that this, you know, this approach of involving them and, and letting them know that we're coming is, um, is really important because it's about catching them being good, not trying to catch them being bad. Um, so yeah, they're, they're very much on board with the process. And that is so important, isn't it? You'll have had these experiences and I'm sure most coach developers where no matter what you do, what you put in place, provided you're in that position wearing the badge there will always be this feeling from the coaches you're working with that you are to some extent judging what you are seeing and it's only over time that these people you're working with the rapport that you get with them means that you are getting around that issue do you have any particular ways in which you manage that yeah i do and i feel like this is actually something that we've got really good at uh, over the past probably two years is that the process of how we can support you on the field is one of three. So we'll call it ghost coach, co-coach, or, um, or invisible. So the invisible is I'm just going to stay in the distance and try and take some notes based on what I see, which is kind of more of that traditional assessment style where people would feel nervous with like guys standing with a clipboard and, and that sort of thing. Um, and if we are going to go with that approach, it's, it's already discussed in the pre-observation phone call. And usually the last question that I share with the coaches ahead of an observation is, how would you like me to best support you? Here are the three options that you can pick from. And a lot of the coaches will say, you know what, I'd just like to do my thing. So I'm fine with you being off the side and um, take your notes and that's fine. And at least then there's a, they're expecting it. They know what to come but the other two ways that the ghost coach is really just kind of standing off the shoulder and prodding and probing from time to time when the, there might be something that they haven't seen and i could say hey tim um what do you notice about the amount of success in the game right now say, it's, it's not very it's not very much okay just notice how quickly that the ball carrier is being closed down okay can we change something in the environment that might help it? Yeah, coach, I'm, I'm going to open up the space a little bit more. Brilliant. Now we increase the distance for the defender and it changes the activity. So that might be a way that you can um, help uh, coaches to reflect on action, or sorry, reflect in action rather than on action. But, um, and then the third one is, is co-coaching. So it's really, you know, boots on the ground, getting in and sharing the session together and that being another planned process. Um, and that, method is really only used with usually more tenured coaches because they're a little further down their coach development pathway um, or somebody that's really struggling with a concept that we can just step in and show them what that looks like so coming back to your original question you know this this feeling of of um that the environment's never going to be real it's never going to be a true reflection of who the coach is and what they do daily because there is always this level of um, I have to try and perform because somebody's here to watch me. And we try and take that away from the equation as much as possible, but we also just have to understand that it's, it's kind of part and parcel of, of this process. Um, but then the way that we try and support them through those three guided options can, can hopefully try and uh, just settle them down and put them a little bit more ease. No, it sounds good and gives gives the coaches a sense of agency over their own development pathway there as well. Do, yeah, you've you've already perhaps answered this a little bit by telling us, you know, some of the different ways in which you're offering development opportunities in person, in situ. Um, do you ever notice your own behaviors and actions changing depending on who you're working with? 
the right thing for me to say would be no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask a better question then. What what would be consistent? What what do you see as being as something that would be consistent to your uh, character, behaviors, and actions when you're working with coaches? And perhaps by unpacking those, we might be able to talk about well, what would be what would be positive differences. Mm. Well, I'll. I'll do the best to try and answer the question. And, and if I'm totally off topic, please just, just uh, pull me out of the rabbit hole. But um, I, I think that some probably similar to a lot of guests that you've had on the call. And I think a very reflective person. So some qualities that I think that I bring to the field is, is that there's a measured and calculated approach to any feedback that's given. There's always a tipping scale. If I if I gain this, I might lose that. And and you have to be really careful with your words and how literal that it might be taken or how it might land with that particular person, what they might be thinking or feeling at a given moment in time, how you can use your energy, demeanor, calmness at times to help maybe settle somebody down. So really... I came across this quote a long time ago now about matching the message with the moment. And I, I love that quote. I come back to it all the time is what is the environment? And then what behavior should now be expected of me to appropriately match that environment in order to help facilitate learning as best as possible. And that could go from a coach developer to a coach, or it can go from a coach to a player. That's brilliant. I, I love that. I've written that down, match the message with the moment. And I can reflect on my own moments where I've achieved that and I really haven't achieved that and, and, and how bad that feels. You know, when you're trying to match the message then to the moments that you're noticing, how do you do that? I mean, I know that this is the art essentially of coach development and this is a difficult question. I, I do understand that. I'd find it difficult to, to really pinpoint things, but what are the things that you're noticing? What are the things that help you to match up this message and moment? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing is I'm not, I'm certainly not perfect at it. And I'd say probably a long way off perfect from it. And what you can find is that you may be observed by multiple different people over the course of, a year, two years, five years, and I'll just get you to even think and reflect as we talk on any of the observations that you've had over time. And quite often, because that's just a single stamp in time, it's not really a true reflection of who you are all the time. It's representative of who you are and what you did at that given moment. But tomorrow, I could coach slightly differently, the next day differently again. So understanding first of all that there's really it's a, it's just a, a timestamp. Um, but then the next piece is just observing the environment and trying to figure out what is happening and what should be happening and, and is there a gap is, is a pretty easy process. Um, there's then an, a number of different ways that you could go so like the English FA used to have this really good uh, acronym and it, the step approach. So size, task, equipment, and players, I think is a, is a useful one for coaches. So it's also useful for coach developers as well, just to observe the environment and say, right, okay, let's start with S. So is the size of the area appropriate to match the learning outcomes? Next, is the task in line with the learning outcomes? And, and we can go so on and so forth from there. Um, something else that I've really built out qu quite recently, actually, is this five steps to effective training sessions. And it actually helps us as coach developers to guide our thinking because we can start from the, the foundation of what great training sessions look like and then build certain blocks above that. And then hopefully... Um, as we're reflecting in the moment at the training session, we can see, okay, it looks like this part of the building block is missing. So that can then help us um, facilitate the conversation later. And just to dig into each of those a little bit for you. So 
the first one and the very foundation, I think that everything else has to be built upon is, is details, planning and organization. And that's specifically organization of both your players and your equipment. So the, the planning side of things, it's um, trying to think big picture. So what's the long-term development plan of the players? What are the activities of choice? And are they matching the learning outcomes? From an equipment and player standpoint is, are you creating an optimal environment in terms of, have you laid out all of your equipment before the players arrive? Um, are you allowing yourself to keep the ball rolling by having minimal movement of equipment during the session? And then have you even planned down to the detail of which players are going to play on which teams? To, to go from there, the next part is, is player connection. So it's about energy and demeanor. And really what I mean by that is, um, you know, the interactions with the kids, having a positive energy, um, active coaching position, they're not static, you're moving around a lot, positive choice of language, the interactions that you have. So the, the people skills. And then that then leads me into the, the next part, which you'll see here that all these things kind of intertwine and they all relate to one another, but uh, optimal ball rolling time. I think this is something that's been highlighted in the game quite a lot over probably the last couple of years, but this ties back to the detailed planning and organization. If I've organized my equipment optimally, I don't have to move an awful lot throughout the session. I've planned who's going to play on what teams. I've, I've went to um, some extreme lengths in being detailed with my planning. That allows the ball to just keep rolling and, and hopefully allows you to uh, avoid overcoaching because the kids are there to play. So beyond that, it's about identifying error, refining and adapting the training session. So really trying to get the kids to the sweet spot or get the, the training session to the sweet spot. And after that, you're talking, yes, X's and O's, detailed um, technical or tactical information and the way that you land that message through pushing information, pulling information uh, that's you know direct or guided. That, that's kind of like the, the last piece. And we've almost, we've got to that. We've got to almost the right to be able to, to teach and coach because we've got all of the building blocks before it. Um, and, and built this really good foundation. So, I mean, ultimately there's, there's kind of like the, the implicit piece and the explicit. So I, I often think of the, the, the explicit is like the gravy. So the, the implicit is, is if we can design training sessions and activities that are so rich in learning opportunities, then even if we didn't say anything, learning could still take place. Now, if we add the gravy, which is great quality coaching on top. Now you're talking spectacular. You've got a great environment. You've got great coaching. And I recognize I'm going away from the question, but I just want to finish off by adding here that if you think about environment and coaching information in two, two different ways, you could have a, um, a poor environment that does not support the learning that you want to take place and excellent quality coaching. Learning might not still take place because the environment is not supporting it. On the flip side, you can have an excellent environment and if the quality of coaching information is not quite as good as it could be, learning can still take place because the environment is now supporting the opportunities for players to experience a problem and find solutions. So as mentioned, the, the, the apex or the best place that we can be is that we have a little bit of both. We have a great environment and great coaching. And uh, coming back to these building blocks, it's I, I think that's the foundations that you build upon. And as a coach developer, circling all the way back to your question, is if we can look back at those um, those building blocks and those foundations to help to to frame the session. You know, if if I'm looking at the train session and the ball rolling time is just really poor. I can then start reflecting on, well, is it partially due to the planning? Is there something there that in the foundation that needs to be addressed? Or is it that the, they're just overcoaching? And now just because of that framework, it allows us to pinpoint what might need to be um, the, the feedback. 
what a great answer um and 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 thank you so much for you know going where you went and bringing it all the way back for us it saves me the trouble uh <laughs> and and of course it's gravy you can take the man out of england uh <laughs> of course um you mentioned ball rolling time there a, a number of times and you know i was fortunate to work at bristol rovers many years ago and that was something that was very important to us not not just from an England DNA uh, and EPPP type policies that that certainly shaped some of that, but also that it was very important to the uh, the academy manager at the time, and then my my foundation phase manager as well. What kinds of things in sessions means that ball rolling time is likely to be higher? And just for for those of us uh, listening in. Why is ball rolling time that important? Because we hear coach developers in football talk about it all the time. Yeah. Certainly in the, I'll, I'll draw reference to the US, which is slightly different to the UK. And it's really from a geographical standpoint. There's kids in an academy here, for example, could be traveling two hours, hour and a half, easy, or a lot of them, an hour, just to get to one training session. So if they have to do that trip twice and I'm traveling two hours, that's four hours in the car. And if I only get 90 minutes to play and the coach robs me of 50% of that ball rolling time, I've traveled for 45 minutes, four hours for 45 minutes of playing time. Now, look, there's always a balance that we have to strike between facilitating learning. So giving coaching information and occasionally that means that you have to stop the practice and paint some pictures and if the kids are engaged during that point in time then it's okay as long as we don't lean into that type of feedback uh, too often but really it's about respecting the um the player and their commitment to the game and wanting to allow them to play um we think about you know and i know that a lot of the the information around this uh, is being slightly misconstrued on the um, the 10,000 hour rule. So I'll, I will not get into that side of things too much, but the, the, the overarching uh, message is that kids need to spend a lot of time on the ball, practicing and playing. So if we want them to achieve some level of mastery, they have to be able to be on the ball, stay on the ball, make decisions, problem solve, fail forward, get back up, try again. And the more time that we take away from them, the, the more that we take away the opportunities for them to, to, um, to, to practice doing those things. So I think that's why ball rolling time is, is something that's under the spotlight right now. And I think for really good reason. And it's never, from a, it's never the wrongdoing of a coach. I think the coaches have got really good intentions. They, they want to coach. They want to try and help create good players but they just don't realize that they waste a lot of time in transitions because they're not optimally organized with their equipment. They don't realize that they've used a free stoppage 16 times in the training session when they could have coached in the flow for 15 of those times. Um, so really it's just about bringing awareness to the coach um, and usually the buy-in is it's really easy to get buy-in but it's another thing to to be able to implement and it's something that i've noticed that a lot of coaches struggle with but putting it under the spotlight means that people are starting to pay more attention to it and over time if we can all globally do our part to keep ticking up those numbers from 60 percent to 65 to 70 to maybe 75 percent ball rolling time which is by the way, 75 is, is unbelievable. The, the, really, when you, when you think about it, um, when you're considering arrival time, departure time, transitioning time, explanations, demonstrations, to then land at 75% is unbelievable. That's another great explanation. I, I've written down three, three things that kind of relate to this then. And Let's unpack those together, uh, those three things. 
because I think it's important um, that the ball roll time in sessions, if we're aiming for 70, 75% for all of the reasons that you've, you've laid out for us, and I certainly don't disagree. Um, the three things for me would be the practice design, the sort of talk time that the coaches actually spend in explanation freezes as you as you said and then that transition between practices so if we start with practice design what kinds of things would you want to see from your coaches in order to not necessarily improve but aim for that 75 percent yeah this is where it gets pretty complicated and it actually becomes really challenging to share this information with new coaches people that are brand new to the game because you're getting really quite complex with it, with this idea. Um, but essentially it's coming back to um, work to rest ratios and, and um, planned intervals and timing. And what we have to understand is that when the number of soccer actions or football actions is higher. So if I'm going to play a, uh, a two versus two game, I'm on the ball all the time, I'm always making decisions. So the number of actions that I have is much greater than if I was playing 11 v 11. We can play 11 v 11 for 90 minutes, but we can't play 2 v 2 for 90 minutes. What we have to understand as coaches is at what point in time does the energy fall off the edge of a cliff? And this is the way that we try and get the message across in a really simple way. There's a lot of good science that will support okay if i wanted to have 50 percent maintenance day versus a 75 percent threshold day or a 90 percent fitness day then it's a manipulation of time how long they play and how long they rest which will ultimately allow me to to hit those benchmarks um and i'm not i am geeky enough about the science but i'm also not well studied enough in it to know that uh, like a, a anaerobic sprint over five meters or something or, or 10 meters should be a one to 18 through one to 20 work rest ratio for example I'm, I'm not that geeky about it yet um but in in terms of soccer activities if i was going to play a 1v1 game for example i can guarantee you after 30 45 seconds the kids are going to be gassed that you lose energy really quickly because it's physically really hard so if we're going to play for 45 seconds, what then happens? Because we can't move on to the next activity and we can't just keep plugging in information after every 45 seconds because it's overload. So we have to get um, pretty savvy about they play for 45 seconds. They might rest for 15 seconds. Let's just say to round up to a minute. So we might do that two or three times with no information other than great job, change roles, let's get the balls back to the right position, ready, play. And that now just allows us to keep the ball rolling, allow them a little bit of recovery within the activity. And then they play for a number of minutes before we then step in and say, right, okay, this interval now is going to be slightly longer, which allows for more recovery. And this is now when I'm going to plan to coach. And if I've planned for error, another Doug Lamov thing. So I'll link you to him later so that you can definitely <laughs> lean on his expertise because he's, he's fantastic at this. Um, but um, if I plan for error, I can anticipate what mistakes that might happen from the players. I can also even plan questions to, to say, right, okay, if it's 1v1, I might notice that the players are struggling to unbalance the opponent. And I can plan questions around, okay, what could you do with your body in order to uh, make it difficult for this player to know where you're going to go. So whole other side of the story, but we have active intervals. So play, rest, play, rest, that's calculated. A little bit of a longer window so we can give some coaching information. And we might do that two or three times. And the easiest way that I can describe this is it, it's like being in the gym where you have a certain number of reps. We rest. And then we might do two or three sets of something, maybe four sets of something before we move on to a new activity. So it's similar in terms of the, the activity from a soccer standpoint is we play, which is the, the rep, and then we rest. And then we do that multiple times over, layer in some information and then move on. 
So that's where we can be really um, strategic with the ball rolling time because we recognize that 1v1 down here is much harder to keep a really high number for ball rolling time because they actually physically need rest and recovery. On the other hand, we play 5v5. Okay, we plan. We're going to play for three minutes straight. They'll rest for one minute and we'll do multiple rounds of that as well. And that's then, as they're playing, would be an opportunity for me to try as best as possible and not to intervene and stop the practice. Um, I want to let the ball roll and I want to let the players solve those problems that the game um, gives them. But coaching in the flow would be useful at that point in time. But at the same time, we also cannot neglect the fact that we still want to make sure that we're teaching the players. So if we're noticing that there's a common thread is that multiple players within the group are struggling with a concept, we might have to use an actual stoppage or a freeze in order to ask questions, create a, um, a multi-layered coaching point, asking multiple people, cold calling, pulling information, pushing a little information, rolling the ball through a certain situation before we get back to playing. And that stuff's important not to neglect because we do still have a responsibility to teach the players. But at the same time, we are always keeping it in mind that what is the demand of the activity? How long is appropriate for them to be able to play? And then can I allow that ball to play as much as possible and only really step in if I need to, otherwise just coaching the flow? There's a, a term that I religiously use called skillful neglect which I think just really cleverly captures those moments as coaches, then what, what we're doing there, we are noticing, we're observing, we're seeing some of the issues that might become chronic, but we are skillfully neglecting them long enough to give players the opportunity to self-correct, to learn, to experience. Uh, and I think some of this talk time stuff, to go on to the second part, coaches stepping in too much too soon usually mm -hmm. it's robbing the players of that opportunity isn't it so you've already started to talk about how we can put the planning in place and then that can help coaches to resist this urge to to step in and to correct and perhaps to overcorrect. as you said we can't then abdicate our role as coach so if we're noticing, particularly individuals, during these moments where we're sort of supposed to, in inverted commas, not be coaching, we might be noticing individuals who are struggling. Or completely the other side, where individuals are too comfortable and we need to push them on a little bit. You, you've spoken about it as coaching in the flow. What, what do those techniques look like? Well, we have to first ask the question as to whether struggle is a bad thing and you've nailed it already which is that as coaches we quite often step in too soon and too much is a whole nother part of the conversation which we'll get to but too soon is okay there's a problem I realized that Tim was not able to take on this player 1v1 and unfortunately what we see a lot of times um is the coaches want to step in and, and fix the problem right away. But there's real value and um, I'd say almost like beauty in, in seeing someone struggle with something, being aware of it, but as you um, eloquently put, uh, skillful neglect is, is the technique that I might be borrowing from you. But we've chosen to, to acknowledge that it's, a, a problem, potential problem, and we'll just see how it plays out. And maybe after two times, okay, this, this looks like it might be a, a problem for Tim. Maybe by the third time, okay, uh, that's maybe now an opportunity for me to um, to step in and help. But we also have to recognize is it, if Tim looks like he's really close, then do I step in on the third time? Or do I just let it go? Or do I say nothing at all and maybe let him reflect on his own after this practice, having had no feedback and no help and support to then self-reflect and say, well, 
I need to do this differently next time. And maybe even that could be a follow-up conversation in the next practice. If you're diligent enough to note these things down and say next practice rolls around, hey, Tim, I noticed in the last practice, you seemed like this was a problem or this was something you struggled with. Did you think about it anymore after practice? And anyway, not to, not to venture into that too much. Um, so we said that stepping in too soon is, is one part of the problem. Uh, stepping in too much is another part. And what I find to be the best tool in the world is, um, is video footage. So when you can record a training session, there is no, I think I feel and any gray areas around what actually happened. It's, it's super objective. And with some coaches, you might have to use that technique and, and, um, it does take a little bit more time like to get there, plan, record, marry up a, a, a microphone to an audio, uh, to a, a video feed and, and do it of a good enough quality that the coach can actually see and hear clearly what's going on in a session. But at that point in time, you're able to be super objective about you stopped the training session 16 times seven of which were freezes, another eight of which were natural stoppages, which means that you only coached in the flow this much. Um, and being objective with your feedback is, is a way for coaches to really have a light bulb moment on their own. They, they don't need you to point out the fact that this needs to be better. They quite often, after looking at their own video, go, oh my goodness, Rich, I hated the sound of my own voice after three minutes. So it's then a case of, of um, trying to put in some action steps so that the coach can, um, it's not just about taking feedback, but it's about using feedback. And we give them feedback, but now what's the actionable item so they can go away and practice this, knowing that for a couple of weeks, it might not be perfect and they might have to get used to it, which is why the development period becomes so important, is we need to give them space after taking information to then apply um, see what the new information looks like in practice, reflect on it some more so that we're, we're constantly closing the loop on learning and then ultimately trying to uh, take them in an upward trajectory. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, so, almost akin to kind of spiral curriculum stuff where it's, you know, we, we revisit these things at later dates. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, the importance of video to remove subjectivity. And as you, yeah. as you rightly said there, and I think this is partly so important that that video isn't being used to hammer the point home by us as coach developers, we might point towards certain things, but it's not to go, see, I told you you were rubbish. It's it just <laughs> wouldn't achieve what we would want it to do. And it, but it does putting objective uh, statistics and then the video in front of the coach removes the the power imbalances that come with you know wearing the badge having the title of coach developer or coach educator that that can often get in the way um okay so the third one was then transitions in 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 practice and and this is mm. something that i'm constantly trying to tighten up in my own practice um mm -hmm. I think there are occasions where you can, as a coach, be picking up cones, be moving things around in order to then give yourself reflection time away from. Yeah. Right. Because whilst you're doing that, not always, but whilst you're doing that, players are more likely to leave you alone and deal with whatever they're dealing with. But we don't want to be doing that all the time. We certainly don't want it to take too long that players are then getting restless. So what, what are your top tips, as it were, for, for coaches in terms of making their transitions between practices better? Yeah, I like the terminology used with making it tighter. And that, that's another one that I'll borrow from you. Um, I, I look at transitions as being like three sections. So and it's not always three. It depends on the coach. But the first part is is um, debriefing the activity that just took place. Then it's a drink, and then it's an introduction of a new activity. And sometimes that needs a talk through, walk through, depending on the complexity. So there's a few things. The, the first one is, if you feel like the message has landed really well, then first question would be, do you really need to debrief the first activity? 
maybe not. It's just time, go take a drink, come back in a minute. When they come back, it's then goes back to your planning, which is if I've planned the activity detailed enough, I can also plan the choice of words that I even use when I want to explain a new activity. And that allows me to be more clear and more concise, which also helps to land the message cleaner with the players. So there's, there's kind of two parts to this because uh, some coaches might look at that last section as being, we're going to explain it as a group, then we're going to set up, and then we're kind of going to explain it again, and then maybe walk through, and then demonstrate with another group, and then we'll play. And that, again, is another piece that just chops away at this time. So in order to just reduce the scope, it would be, can you get the players out into position as quickly as possible? Quick walkthrough, explain as you demonstrate. So it's a talk through, walk through, and get the ball rolling as quick as you can. And the, the last part I'll mention on this is that let's just say you have a game that's got multiple facets to it. There's There's a lot of rules and it can be pretty complex. Well, I could try and give all of that information in the explanation, but the likelihood that they can hang on to every piece of information is, is pretty um, small. So instead, can, what can I say that's the least amount of information that would allow us to get the ball rolling and then as they play and orientate themselves to the game, I can start layering information. Um, an example I'll give you is, let's just say one team scores in the big goal, one team scores in four mini goals that are set up on the halfway line. So pretty simple. Blue team scoring the big goal, red team, you've got four goals to score and off you go play. So they play. And I know that that's not what I want the game to look like in the end. So now I add a rule after a minute and say, okay, team that's scoring uh, in the four goals, if you can catch the other team offside, it's another point for your team. So it's as good as a goal. So now we're starting to bring out the desired behaviors in the players, which is to push up the back line. And what I'm really trying to focus on with the game is to get runs in behind. So I've shaped the defending team by throwing a rule that they can catch them offside and get a point so that it starts to shape their behaviors. But if I started to add all of these things in the initial explanation, hey, you can score in these four goals. You can push up and get them outside for it. Okay, I might have lost somebody along the way. So if I just say the most basic part to get the game going, I can then layer and add that uh, information as you know the, the next few minutes start to pass. And, and ultimately, that will help you just to reduce the scope on uh, the transition time. Another really good explanation and 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 sound has some connections with a layered approach of you know teaching games for understanding game sense, those types of approaches. Of course, it doesn't always work, but it's just brilliant when you do something like that. You start with the game, you just get the ball rolling with a simple kind of one or two constraints, and then the players can start to announce their own errors. So you were talking about you know, getting players to shift up so that you can catch players offside. Well, wouldn't it be lovely if that happened in the first four minutes that you've started this first block of your play and you can have that just one little conversation with you know, the right centre-back? What, what if you'd stepped up a bit earlier as a line then? Oh, they would have been offside. Oh, okay. Could you, could you do that? And it, you, you can start to get that implementation of your next constraints the things that you're next trying to work on through the players yeah. without even having to put them in yourself now look that's golden when that happens and it doesn't always happen of course you know it'd be very very difficult to fabricate that and i would hasten to say that we probably shouldn't be trying to fabricate that but when that happens it's lovely isn't it it, it is and and uh you know sometimes if you if if the organization of your activity, if you, of your game is, uh, is good enough, then it might bring out those behaviors in the players naturally without having any constraints or rules. Uh, like you said, maybe it's just, hey, center back, if you stepped off, if you stepped up and they went in behind you, what happens? It's offside. Great. I'll give your team another point if you catch them offside. So 
you know, point being is that uh, sometimes you might not even need the rule, but as you mentioned, I mean, that's, that's dreamland, you know, that, that's, uh, if that happens, we, we can smile and step to the side of the pitch and just let it happen. But it doesn't, it doesn't happen like that that often. So, you know, the addition of the, the rules, the constraints, the incentives are, are definitely what help to uh, encourage certain behaviours. And I think the incentives is the important bit there, that if, if they've managed to announce their own error, I want to congratulate that. Yeah. Right? By giving an incentive. Um, so, I mean, how often do we see the practices where it's like through the thirds, right? I mean, I still mm-hmm. use them. I find them a little clunky at times, but I use through the thirds to try and usually to try and work on kind of moving through, okay, we're going from one unit to another unit to another unit. But of course the difficulty is when you constrain players to one particular area that then it can become quite unrealistic quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I've always found that in those situations where players kind of, they, they kind of want to go over the next line. I'm, I'm, I'm gesturing, you know, that kind of stum- yeah. stumbling, that stutter run. Well, Cass, why did you do that? Oh, well, because I, I, I want to go up with play. Okay, well, now you've noticed the right time. I'll let you go. Oh, we can all go. No, no, just you. Yeah, <laughs> and you can kind of play with that, can't you? But you, you want to not just incentivize the returns that you're after in that practice, but also to congratulate them for noticing where the practice might change and shift a little bit to make it even more realistic to the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're um, spinning my wheels a little bit now, and I'm drawing reference to an experience that um, I observed probably about seven or eight years ago now, where a training session was taking place in a gymnasium that I was coming on as the next coach and had saw um, almost exactly what you're describing is um, a player was told you can't cross the halfway line and the ball pops out and she's definitely the, the favorite 70-30 to, to come away with possession uh, and hesitates and stops and stops and she can't cross the line and um, it's unfortunate because that environment was actually not conducive of being supportive of, hey, you've recognized a really good opportunity there. How about now that you spotted that, let's support you and you can go and do that next time. Um, but it was it was more on the other side of things, which is <laughs> that will not cross the halfway line <laughs> because we have less players back now. Um, I, I had a situation yeah. in, uh, in New Jersey working for UK Elite where I had a, a rec team, um, but they were a good rec team. Um, and you know, weren't playing in divisions. So we played in this tournament and I, there were zero offsides in this game. And the reason there were zero offsides in this game is because the other team, the opposition team placed one of their center backs on the penalty spot for the entire game, the entire game. She did not move away from this penalty spot. She spent the entire, so their, their team could be in our penalty box. And she stood on her own penalty spot, having a chat with the goalkeeper. And to say that this centre-back got in the way of more shots than the goalie is an understatement. This, this player <laughs> had mastered blocking <laughs> shots. And I imagine just because she'd probably done it for a year. Um, but it, it does point to you know, some of the, the ridiculousness of constraints that uh, we as coaches sometimes contrive. And... I think that the important point from coach development is that when we're observing sessions and it is clear that a constraint is not quite getting out what we're after, um, is not quite high enough on, up on a, a realism scale, can the coach themselves, just like we've been talking about players announcing their own errors, can the coach themselves notice it? And if that happens, I mean, I'm going to walk away as a coach developer very happy from that session. Yeah, I think that's the piece that is what we what we hope the coaches can start to um, pick up on and, and 
and do themselves, uh, have the autonomy to do themselves. It's really, that's the piece where it's identifying error and it's not an error in, you know, maybe it is an error actually in what the player does through the constraints, but ultimately it's identifying error is something's not right. Is it the environment? Is it the task? Is it the player? So recognizing what's wrong and then being able to refine, adapt, and take the right action to then get the, the training session back where it needs to be. Um, that's a skill, the skill. And, and yeah, I think you're right. Is um, when coaches can get to that level as, as the developer, you just step back and just enjoy, you know? Throw, throw the clipboard away. Yeah, no, yeah. golden. Well, look, uh, Richie, I suspect you and I could could talk uh, for hours and hours, and, and I, I hope we do. Um, but for the sake of uh, this this podcast and this episode, let's let's wrap that up there. That feels like a good place. A last question for you. If you could have an audience with one person, one person only, choose anyone you like, who are you going for? Well, Tim, I have to tell you, first of all, that I, I'm a little bit of a cheater because I, I've been listening to your last few podcasts. and oh, no, that's, uh, not I, cheating. that's That's appreciated. <laughs> that's planning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd expect Absolutely. nothing less from you, to be perfectly honest with you, Richie. <laughs> well, the answer that I keep coming back to, and it, I hope this doesn't get lost as being like, ah, it's the easy answer to give, because it is an easy answer to give. I, I would go with Jurgen Klopp, and I, I've got a really specific reason for it, which is, and, and by the way, if if I had ever had the opportunity to meet uh, Dick Bates my goodness, I, I would have snapped your hand off for that opportunity because as a coach developer, he's the best. I mean, second to none. Um, but with Jurgen Klopp, what I find really intriguing and interesting about him is I've seen this evolution of a team over three or four seasons now in which in the beginning, I think that many people could probably remember these types of moments is he's running on the field and hugging people that look really uncomfortable. Uh, there's a level of um, vulnerability that's shared in the public eye because I'm going to hug somebody on camera and that person is is seemingly not overly receptive. So that's the environment that he stepped into. And you see his personality, how that's unfolded. And then you start to see the trend of the team and where they've come from and where they are now. And you see so much more of a warmth to the players and an openness and I think that's environment I think that's people skills and I'd love the chance to sit and pick his brain for an hour and figure out what are the behaviors that drive him how much of this is intuitive versus planned and what stumbling blocks he might have come across on the way um, because it's a fascinating thing to observe you know seeing somebody come from this place of very easily to identify as being like not a great culture. And then you see it now and it, it looks like a spectacular culture, albeit last few games, you know, maybe results are not going to so much your way anymore. I'm not sure if that uh, influences the hugging, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you get the chance to sit down with him, if I could, if I could ask you to ask him one more question along those lines, which is, when he's experienced pushback to operating in that way. And I, I would suggest that probably, you know, as fans, we will see more of it than he does for sure. Um, because why would he be interested in, in what they're saying, um, particularly opposition fans? But there is that pushback of, especially when uh, Liverpool weren't winning and weren't champions of, well, at least they got a hug. You know, uh, you know, they haven't got a trophy, but at least they've, they're hugging each other, you know. And it was kind of this push away of, of well, it doesn't work. And that mm -hmm. happens a lot in football, doesn't it? Where, where um, you know, the emotional side of it and when coaches and managers do show vulnerability and do show bravery in that way, that it quite quickly gets dismissed, especially if they're not getting a result. Yeah, I, I really think that that's just a case of being true to yourself and true to your identity and your beliefs and 
if it's what you live and die by every day, then it doesn't matter what other people think. It's this is who I am. And I feel like he has such a strong identity that is is evident. That's a whole other episode. A whole of other episode. So, <laughs> no, I mean, hopefully I'll have a, a chance to get you back on in, in future. But for now, Richie, thank you so much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. No, just just leaves me to say welcome to the tribe. Thank you. That's it for episode seven of season three. And our thanks to Richie for giving his time and insight to us. As I mentioned, Richie has since moved to a new role as a full-time academy coach, and we wish him all the best with that. Our conversations regarding coach development continue as we follow up this episode on our online network, thedevelopertribe.mn.co, where coaches and educators are meeting to dive in further to our practice and understanding. There's even more going on there as we unpack social and emotional learning in sports settings this month. Look out for a free webinar available towards the end of the month, and in the meantime, and as ever, Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week.